You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Lee here. This is They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. Intermission number 43. It's been almost a year since we've done one of these. 42 was back in October 24th of last year, I think. Something around then. Um, but yeah, it's been a while. Have not done one of these in a while. Generally do do these for, you know, people who are not aware who are new to the podcast or whatever. Uh, these intermission episodes are usually shorter episodes, you know, under an hour, where, you know, we don't have time to do a regular episode, so maybe I have time to belt out one of these. And apparently I haven't had time in a year, or I just haven't had the give a fuck to bother doing them. Because um, usually they're much more informal. I don't edit these really all that much as I do with other stuff. I don't go in and try to obsessively take out ums and ahs and likes and all that garbage. I uh, I wing it like my uh, friend Vaughn over at Motion Picture Massacre, who just he just don't he don't give a fuck. He just goes in and talks about what he wants to talk about, and he doesn't bother too much with the editing, which is something I respect. It's a very hard thing to do to do a solo podcast and try to keep the energy up and keep things moving forward, etc., etc., but I'm going to do that this time out because, um, well, we might end up in a bit of a, a slog as far as getting regular episodes out for the next little while. Um, Lady Lee is going back to school. Uh, she previously got her degree, and now she's going to teacher's college so she can learn to put her uh, education into practice. Um, so that might interfere with our schedules as far as recording. We will see. I'm not quite sure what the picture there is yet. I'll have a better idea once she uh, has like her first couple weeks uh, doing her education. She's starting that this week. So, um, yeah, we were planning on doing Maniac from 1980. Um canceled that last minute because the guest I wanted to have on could not uh, attend for this past weekend, so uh, yeah, we're just going to put that on hold, put that on the shelf, we've got some other things to do as well, um, uh, some things in mind for future podcasts, got to start thinking of October, that's coming very, very quickly, going to try to get some extra horror content out there like we usually do for October. Of course, Lee Van Cleef is going to make his return doing his radio show. So, um, yeah, a lot of stuff coming. Uh, just not sure what 
form it's going to be in. Is it going to be Lee on a lot of episodes with me as usual, or am I going to be getting other guests in, or am I going to be doing more of these intermissions? Who knows? We'll see. Um, But yeah, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. I have a bunch of recent watches, and I'm just going to talk about those, and that's going to be the episode. Just a little something for, you know, you people out there who follow on the feed. Again, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with the intermission episodes, that's kind of what it's for. It's just like, you know, don't want to give you guys too many weeks where nothing, you know, pops up on your feed or whatever. And um, we like putting content out. At least I do. I, I can't speak for my co-hosts. They seem to like it. So we're going to do that. I'm going to be back here in a couple minutes. Probably play some podcast promos little bit of music as usual and I'm going to come back and talk about how many films do I have here one two three four five six I have seven films that I'm going to mention that I recently watched so uh, yeah I'll be back with that after the break we got this man we got this by the ass Motion Picture Massacre. Fuck you. We talk about exploitation movies, grindhouse movies, fucking cult movies, horror movies, okay? We don't talk about fucking romantic comedies over here. We're not talking about fucking Sandra Bullock or some shit. We're talking about good movies, the kind that people like to watch. Yeah! back. I just noticed that in the first part of this I recorded plenty of fan noise blowing right into my microphone. Apologies, but I'm not editing it. I'm not re-recording the first part. Like I said, this is the way these episodes go. So let's talk about the stuff I've watched in the last little while. So the first one I'm going to mention is Miss 45 from 1981, directed by Abel Ferreira. Uh, Of course, this is starring the all too soon gone, but a wonderfully talented Zoe Lund, who is the star of this. And uh, yeah, this is a rape revenge film, but you know, it's not the same sort of rape revenge film necessarily as people are used to. It's not I Spit on Your Grave. It's not, you know, a third of the film being the rape. Uh, 
it's you know she plays this young mute woman who you know is socially awkward and isolated uh living in in new york and uh she is sexually assaulted in the street by abel ferrera by the way playing the rapist and when she survives that and gets home she is assaulted and raped again by someone who was breaking into her apartment while she was uh, at work. And this sends her off the, uh, well, sends her off the rails. Uh, She kills her second attacker and starts dismembering the body uh, slowly, packing the pieces in the fridge, and then going out for walks and sort of discarding the pieces piece by piece, right? And uh, she has his gun that he had when he was in the apartment. And she soon decides that, yes, I'm going to just start killing people with it. Now, where she gets the extra bullets, because she goes through a lot of them. I don't recall a scene where she buys bullets, but I, I could be wrong about that. But she does use that gun quite a bit. And uh, it's basically a her spiral out of control Um the prey becomes the predator, basically. But, you know, it makes the point of... It gets it gets down to her killing people that necessarily don't deserve it. She just starts killing people because they're men. Um, in fact, that's who she targets, is exclusively men. And she just... Uh, she loses all touch with reality. She starts dressing herself up much more sexy. sexy. Um, you know, she was very conservatively dressed, kind of buttoned-down person before she was assaulted. And she starts, you know, becoming seductive. And, like, even at, at the end of the film, when she wears a nun's costume, she has, like, sexy stockings and lipstick. And there's this great scene where she's loading the bullets into her gun, and she's kissing each one of them with her lipstick to put a, a kiss print on the bullet. As she goes to a, a party to uh, enact more of her vigilante vengeance against men in, in manhood in total, I guess. Um, it's a great film. I like it a lot. I, I feel like it, even though it is uh, exploitative, it's not in the same way that most re- rape revenge films are. Um, it's, it is grimy, it's seedy, but that comes more from how Ferreira films New York. And he's filming in New York that doesn't exist anymore, right? Which is always sort of the appeal to, from films around this era, be the be them the like the bottom of the barrel grindhouse stuff or something like this that touches on being more of an art house film. Um, art house in the grindhouse basically. And when he's filming New York, it's like, man, it, it transports you. Especially on the outside. Outside in New York where it's kind of beautifully shot but dangerous like it feels dangerous and scary and you can see how a person could get lost in a place like that and become isolated and weird and then he films the insides of the apartments in New York the cramped spaces where everyone's close to to one another where you can hear your neighbors through the walls uh, where your neighbors are always nosing in on your business and you can kind of see, like, Zoe Lund getting kind of digested by it. Like, it, it almost feels like she's in the belly of some great monster. And, um, yeah, I think it's it's a brilliant film. I, I 
feel like rewatching it a few times is going to better illuminate things for me. Like I had seen bits and pieces of it over the years. I'd never done a, like a full on thorough re sort of watch of it all the way through until recently. And, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely points about feminism. There's points about just how society in general, I think, eats people alive and spits them out, you know? Um, not just the patriarchy or whatever, but just society in general, uh, treating the working class person like a piece of meat to just chew up and spit out. There seems to be points sort of tilted towards that kind of theme. And... I feel like, you know, again, it's not super exploitive. Like, the rape scenes are very brief. The violence is very quick and brief. It doesn't sit there and linger on the gore all that much. It's more the subject matter itself. It's more the spiral out of control and the trauma that our main character is feeling and how she reacts to that and how she acts out from that trauma. Um, There's a lot more going on in this film than what you might be led to believe, especially considering if you, if you like look up the reaction it first got when it came out, where this movie was vilified as just another sleazy grindhouse thing that, uh, wasn't worth anyone's time, misogynistic bullshit, you know, like it's not that at all. It's, it's actually a pretty thoughtful, interesting film. I think, um, does it get to everywhere it needs to be or it wants to be? I, I don't know. Again, I, I feel like rewatches are going to make that a, a bit more clearer to me, but I think it was pretty great. Moving on, another great film. Um, first time watch this year, just came out last year. The Menu, 2022, directed by uh, Mark, Mark Malod. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. Stars the great uh, Ralph Fiennes and... Anna Taylor-Joy, who, as you know, popped up in some horror stuff here and there. She's kind of a modern scream queen in a way. She does do, you know, more mainstream stuff as well, but when she's doing horror, she's pretty damn good in it. Um, I listened to a podcast, the uh, Patreon episode of um, Bloody Bits Horror Show from a few years back, or... Well, no, it wouldn't be a few years back. It would be, what, a year back, where they reviewed this. And um, Eddie the Axe and a friend of this show, who's been on the show a couple times, Robbie Robertson, who at one point was a professional chef and, you know, went through the rigors of, like, studying to be a world-class chef at one point, talked about this film. And it was pretty enlightening to hear him talk about how this film gets a lot right about the culture surrounding you know, world-class chefs and what they have to go through, how they live, uh, to the point where he mentions that both he and other people who watched this that were in the industry were triggered by some of the stuff in this, like very strikingly, emotionally, psychologically triggered by some of the stuff they saw in this, Um, which, you know, just helps add to the authenticity of uh, authenticity of this authenticity that's not a word um and then you know the movie itself feels like it gets shit right even if you're a layman or you're just you have no real knowledge at all um but yeah the film isn't about cooking and being a chef necessarily right it's it's a it's kind of an update on 
the Vincent Price theater of blood style film where, you know, this master of their craft, this once great beacon of the genre they're in, whatever they're doing, they've come to, they've hit the rock bottom, basically. Either they've been criticized into obscurity or they've, they've lost a step and now all the people who used to support them have turned their backs on them or are using them, you know, uh, it's, it's within that vein. And then of course the person in question goes insane to some degree or seeks revenge and, you know, takes that, uh, trauma out on, on the people who once either, either supported them or at least brought them down. So there's a lot of that here where, you know, Ralph Fiennes, world-class chef invites all these specific people to his great fantastic foo-foo restaurant that's on an island isolated from everyone else in the world and you know proceeds to serve all these courses on his menu and you know periodically is like taking revenge on people by you know killing them um and he he plans on killing everybody there eventually right that's the whole thing and it's just great performances, great tension, uh, comments on, on you know, artsy snobs, it comments on chef's culture, it, it, on, on being used, you know, like giving yourself to something that gives nothing back to you, um, you know, losing the joy of what you do. Uh, it, it definitely has some things to say about that, you know, how people can, you know, get so far up their own ass or just, you know, lose sight of what they uh, got into a certain field for, you know, where it, their passion just becomes a job. There's a lot of that here. And also, um, it really criticizes, criticizes fan culture uh, to a great degree. Like, the, this, the sort of gatekeeping fandom of, you know, people who are self self-styled experts who know everything and have to tell everyone about those things, but they can't do themselves, of course, right? They know everything, but they can't do themselves. And there's there's a brilliant character that represents this in this film and the scene with them that um, leads to their ultimate fate. Uh, it's just one of the best things I've seen in film in a little while. Um, this is great. This is a great film. I don't want to spoil it too much. Uh, but it's it's uh it's a like I said it's a bit of an update on that sort of old theater of blood thing so immediately I was kind of attracted to the underlying structure of this film and the performances really sell it and uh I thought it was really good it's it's a it's more of a dark comedy horror than just a straight horror film so there's there are some very funny moments as well and um yeah worth checking out I know I know the movie was kind of hyped up too and so some people kind of like eh maybe I won't it's a new horror movie can it really be that good I'm starting to get burnt by stuff you know that hasn't been all that great since like the new high point in horror around like 2016 or whatever like I, I feel like people are starting to feel like that sort of run of really great horror films from that period uh, till now is, is started to peter out again and maybe people are reluctant to see new horror movies again that are in theaters like the big stuff but this is one of the ones that's really good all right moving on last voyage of the demeter from 2023 this is by andre andre of Ov- 
Overdahl? Overdahl, maybe? I, I don't know. Apologies. Um, he's the guy who did uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, oh, he also did uh, Troll Hunter, right? And that, that's what put him on the map. And then The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which was pretty good. Actually, I've liked all of his movies that he's done so far that I've seen. Um, and this is no uh, different, although probably not as good as his other movies. But, you know, we'll get into this. Um, Last Voyage of the Meter, of course, it's based on the singular chapter in Bram Stoker's Dracula that talks about, basically gives us the captain's log of the Demeter as it transported Dracula's uh, coffins across the ocean to, uh, to England. And very little detail in those in those original texts it's basically a short story within dracula um you know dracula is in a pistolary is that the right word um book with a lot of letters and diaries and all that stuff right and this is no different there but you know it it gives scant details and, and it's kind of super effective in what it doesn't tell you it's just like you know the ship this this captain on the ship like continuously experiencing weirder and weirder things happening where they don't know what's going on and you know sailors is a very superstitious lot so there's a lot of like speculation and not a lot of confirmation other than people are dying and disappearing in the night as the ship continues to on its voyage um so they try to you know dramatize this and they have to build characters where there really are none in the actual text uh and they have to try to build a story around it and i think they do a fairly successful job um, you know, you know where this is going if you've read Dracula. You know what happens, essentially. So, you know, they've got to work their way around that a little bit. So there's very little surprise in the eventual outcome of the film. But, you know, they try to fill in the gaps with cool shit. And it, it basically becomes alien. It, it, it's kind of an alien retread, right? It, it can't help but be an alien retread, really. Um as you know, people in cramped spaces being picked off by something they can't see and can't understand. And, you know, again, these are sort of lower class, working class people, just like the space truckers in Alien. So they're, you know, they're, they're up against greater powers than, than what they uh, are used to, you know, because, uh, you know, they're, 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 Dracula is an aristocrat. Uh, he did, you know, arrange all of this, just like you know the 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 Utani Whalen Utani Corporation or whatever. Um, kind of behind the scenes was, uh, you know, puppeteering things and and basically just using the uh, quote unquote space truckers as uh, expendable human fodder, and that, that's kind of the same thing here. And it's not bad. It's not a bad film. Um, the look for Dracula is pretty cool. More of a in-between Nosferatu and human bat kind of form. He can take human form, but he doesn't do that until the very end of the film. But um, I like Dracula in this. He gets to be real mean-spirited. He gets to fuck with people. Uh, there's a lot of, like, you know, him picking people off and killing them violently and lots of gore. There are some practical effects. There are a lot of CGI effects that look less as good, but 
I didn't mind them. I, I'd seen some people like kind of bitching about it. I thought they looked good for CGI effects, especially for a film that didn't have a massive budget. I th- I thought they pulled off the look and the feel of the whole thing pretty well. Uh, the the film does feel claustrophobic, and um, they do you know they do change things up. They they make it so like you're not quite sure if some of these people are going to survive or not. Uh, like I said, they get mean spirited. Like anyone can die in this. There's a kid in this film. There's a dog in this film. There's there's animals being transported in the cargo hold of, of the ship in this film and yeah there's uh there's a lot of dead people and things by the end of this um and i think honestly the only misstep is they kind of leave it open for a sequel that they're probably never going to get because it didn't do very well uh which is unfortunate but at the same time it's like uh, eh, kind of expected it to go that way right but um it as it stands if if you like the sort of alien formula essentially, and you want to see it done in this sort of, like, Victorian era uh, sort of recreation, then uh, it's pretty good for that. It's not a bad action horror film with good tension and claustrophobic stuff going on. So, um, I'd say give it a look. I I didn't think it was, like, the greatest thing ever, but it was way better than I kind of expected it to be, actually. So, check it out. Next one I'm going to mention, Dark of the Sun from 1968. This is by Jack Cardiff, uh, starring Rod Taylor and Jim Brown. And this is involved. This is another one of these movies about mercenaries in Africa around the 1960s into the 70s. Um, so you know, there's plenty of other movies that are kind of around, uh, sort of based around the same sort of uh, subject matter, like. Um, Wild Geese and Dogs of War and stuff like that, right? Um, this is pretty much up there if those those sort of top films in the genre, I'd say. Uh, all this this one involves the uh, mercenary work around a uh, around the the Simba rebellion in the Congo, I believe is what it was. Uh, and Rod Ch- Rod Taylor and Jim Brown are professional mercenaries, and. Um, they get in there. They're hired to uh, basically. I think. I think it's to uh, save some people or something like that. Like you know, there's some Belgian mining interests and stuff involved in this, and um, it doesn't really matter. It's like their mission is doomed from the start because they have to put together this like ragtag group of people, and one of them's a former Nazi. Well, you're never a former Nazi. You're always a Nazi, as far as I'm concerned. But he's a Nazi who's like working in with the military in the Congo at the time, and there's tensions there, and they have to basically like hijack a. Tr- they have to like take this train they built and souped up with guns and shit and tr- go deep into the Congo with it and uh, like rescue some people and uh, they have to like retrieve a bunch of diamonds basically, which will help uh, like seal uh, and secure the power of the like the current president or whatever and um, 
you know, keep him in, keep him in power. So, you know, they got, they got to go in there. They got to fight with like, they, they have skirmishes with like the UN and, uh, you know, rebel factions and stuff like that. And it's a very hardcore film for 1968. It's pretty rough around the edges. It gets pretty fucking mean in places. Uh, our heroes are not particularly heroic. They're just slightly less of uh, bastards than the people they're fighting, really. Um, you know, and there's the usual kind of racist tropes and stuff that can't really be avoided around this time that pop up in these movies. I'd say it's not as bad as some movies of this uh, type. Um, it does make a point to try to, like, say, hey, racism sucks kind of thing, strangely enough. It's something you really don't expect from a film like this, but... Um, but yeah, it, it's just a really dour, hardcore bummer of a film in a way. Um, there's a fight between uh, Rod Taylor and the Nazi guy at one point where the Nazi guy tries to kill him with a chainsaw, which is pretty cool. You, you'll see like that depicted on the cover art for most of the posters and shit uh, for this. And um, I really liked it. You know, the... It, it doesn't really uh, get preachy about morality or anything like that. It's it's very much like here's here's as close to the truth of this shit we can get. You know, like the mercenaries going in aren't great people. Uh, a lot of the people fighting this war aren't great people. It's mostly the population and the the uh, you know the real people on the ground. The 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 casualties of of this conflict that are you know the. Uh, collateral damage, I should say, that are fucked with, and they're the ones that suffer the most in, in these sort of things, and yeah, pretty good, pretty, pretty, pretty good, um, moving on, uh, The Tower from 1993, this is directed by Richard, uh, Kletter, now, this is not the, uh, tower from the 1980s from Emeritus Productions here in Canada. It's not the shot on video one. Um, this is... This was made for Fox TV, I believe. And it has got a lot of the same premise, though. It's basically a remake of the Canadian Tower, in a sense. Because it's about a high-tech uh, skyscraper, basically, that... Um, has a computer in it, you know, uh, that looks like it runs on like Windows 3.1.1 or something along those lines. Like it's got a, it's got a sort of a graphical user interface and touch screens and all this kinds of stuff that felt very, very futuristic at the time, I'm sure. Um, but uh, it's starring Paul Reiser of all fucking people, which is just weird. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of diehard in a way because he's stuck in the tower overnight. Like he gets a new job there and Paul Reiser kind of causes most of the problems here. Like the computer in the tower goes crazy because it's supposed to enforce certain corporate initiatives and uh, standards, and he goes against them because Paul Reiser is a wild and crazy guy. You know, he doesn't quite fit in with the corporate environment. He makes, like, meaty music on his uh, PC at home. Well, well, actually, he does, like, sort of like synth music and shit like that. You know, it's not quite meaty files or whatever, but... Um, but yeah, he's 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 got ambitions to be more than just like a corporate stooge kind of thing, right? So he doesn't quite fit in. He he skirts like the dress code and stuff like that, and this kind of uh, gets the computer 
interested in him and like, hey, we got to we got to shut this guy down. Basically, the computer takes it upon its own uh, initiative to uh, go after him and it locks down the tower at night when he's still working there tries to kill him, kills a couple other people that are in the tower at night, unfortunately. And it takes a turn, like, halfway through, too. It's like, he escapes from the tower. But then the female co-worker he was trying to date shows up in the tower looking for him because they were going to go on a date that night. And then he has to go back in and rescue her. And then there's even another twist there. And I I won't spoil it in case you want to see this one. Um... It was surprisingly good. It was fun. Like, there were some good special effects, some good gimmicks for, like, the tower's defense systems and how it tries to go after uh, old Paul Reiser. Again, I can't believe he was in this. Like, one of the weirdest casting choices, but somehow he kind of works. Um, he, he sparks a little bit of life into this otherwise kind of bland production, but it, it looks all right for a 90s TV movie, and it was enjoyable enough. Um... I was pleasantly surprised, let's put it that way. Moving on, I Come in Peace slash Dark Angel from 1990, directed by Craig R. Baxley. And of course, um, he was mostly a stuntman and stunt coordinator. I think he still is working, actually. But uh, he did direct a few films, a bunch of TV as well. Notable stuff he directed around this time, Action Jackson. And uh, Stone Cold, so you know, two two bangers there basically. And this is starring Dolph Lundgren and uh, Brian Benben from Dream On. And um, yeah, this is one of my favorites because it's kind of a it's kind of a transition movie from 1980s style sci-fi action to 1990s. Like, there's a lot of 80s bleeding into this still. But it's doing some new things. It's going in some new directions that you would see more on the like direct-to-video market in the 1990s. Um, and this one's just a lot of fun. You get to see Dolph Lundgren, you know, be the be the star, which you know he has done a lot of direct-to-video stuff in his day or whatever. But you know, rarely a uh, the main star of like a theatrical production. And he's really good in this, I think, you know, kind of subdued. He he doesn't have quite the personality and charisma of, like, a Stallone and an Arnie and stuff like that, which holds him back a little bit. But he does have his own kind of laid-back, chill kind of charisma going on. And Brian Benben makes for a good, like, nebbish uh, sort of foil and partner in this. And it involves them basically getting together. Like, Brian Benben works for the FBI, Dolph Lundgren works as, you know, a maverick rogue cop who wears a trench coat and looks real cool. And they're hunting uh, down this murderer who seems to be injecting his victims with heroin and then, like, extracting chemicals from their brain. And it turns out, of course, he's an alien. Uh, He's uh, this, um, what's what's his name? Uh, Something Mathis. I should have wrote that down. Uh, Big tall motherfucker as physically imposing, if not more physically imposing than Dolph Lundgren, and he, of course, goes around, every once in a while, he'll say to one of his victims, or whatever, I come in peace, and of course, that sets up the immortal line at the end, where uh, Dolph Lundgren manages to manages to do him in, and goes, and you go in pieces, of course, which is great, um, but 
yeah, it's so fun. The, just the idea of an alien, uh, basically drug dealer coming to Earth to extract drugs for his home planet or whatever. And then there's an alien vice cop who shows up for a while. And, uh, you know, that Dolph Lundgren and Brian Binman sort of meet. And uh, so, you know, a little bit of exposition to explain to them what actually is fucking going on. And, of course, uh, the alien has some high-tech alien weapons and gadgets and... It's just a lot of fun. It's a good buddy cop movie. It's a good sci-fi actioner. It's dumb as fuck, but it's fun. And uh, I always enjoy this one when I see it. This is one I did for a um, double feature screening uh, this past weekend for some friends who had never seen it. And uh, they all enjoyed it as well. They thought it was pretty fun. Um, But the big hit, and this was the first movie I showed uh, that night for the double feature was Night Beast from 1982, directed by Don Dohler. Also known, um, well, not also known, it's basically a remake of Don Dohler's The Alien Factor from the 77, I think, 78, something like that. It was, it was a while before. It's like, oh, he got some money, so he decided to remake it and do a better job with it. And I argue he did. Like, I think this is probably Don Dohler's best film. Um... And it's a very simple premise. Alien crashes on Earth. He's got a ray gun. And he goes around shooting hillbillies in the rural town that he crashed in. And, of course, the hillbilly cop and and, uh, the other police and some locals try to band together to fight the alien. And that's basically the entire fucking story. And it's effectively done. It works. Like, it's silly. It's cheap. But it looks decent enough as a production from from this time. Like, it's a low-budget production, but it looks good enough where it's passable as, like, oh, this could be in theaters, you know? Like, it's kind of a tail-end-of-the-drive-in-era production, if you get my meaning there. Um, it, it doesn't have the sheen of, like, a Hollywood movie or something like that, but it, it's passable. It, it looks like... Uh, like the Crater Lake monster. It's it's on that level kind of thing, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with how it's filmed and how it looks. It just doesn't have that production quality that, like, a bigger studio would have. It just doesn't have the money, basically, right? Um, but, yeah, it's good. The, the acting is, you know, it's regional, mostly, like, nobody's just doing what they can, you know? Um... And it, it, it makes for enjoyment because, you know, it's one of those so bad it's good kind of things in, in some respects. But it, it's actually competently well done, you know, in a lot of respects. I think the special effects kind of look cool, even though they're very obvious, like cheap, like this is, you know, you know how they did them, you know, kind of thing. But I think it's kind of fun. If I'd seen this as a kid on TV, I would have fallen in love with this film. It would probably be like a nostalgic kind of like classic as far as I'm concerned. Like one I'd love to this day if I'd seen it as a kid. And in seeing it now, I quite love it. Um, it's, it's just got a hokey charm to it that you don't see in movies anymore. And, you know, the alien doesn't look great. It's basically just a mask and alien hands, but it looks good enough and you know there's no reason for the alien to be killing people other than it's an alien and it shows up and kills people and you know there's uh they even throw in some titties and stuff in this movie just for you know 
extra enjoyment. I think the best actor is the uh, the woman who plays like the mayor's mistress or whatever girlfriend. She seems to be just having a great time, and her character unfortunately gets killed and shouldn't have been killed. She should have lasted to the end, but um, yeah, there's a lot of joy to be had in this film. I think um, you, there's there's plenty of movies on this same level budget wise and talent wise that are just absolute dog shit from this era and then you see something like this where there's obvious obvious like love and um enthusiasm put into it even though they didn't necessarily have the talent and the money the love and enthusiasm goes a long way to make it an enjoyable movie not necessarily a big great piece of art that's gonna win a lot of rewards or anything like that of course but i mean who really cares about that shit what at the end of the day it's whether the movie entertains a person or not and uh every every other sort of consideration is kind of like secondary after that Uh, you know if it also is like enlightening and tackles social issues and uh is artistically significant and you know enriches your life in some deeper way then that's fucking fantastic but as long as it's entertaining as long as it doesn't make you roll your eyes in a way that's like oh fuck this sucks or as long as it doesn't bore you then it's worth seeing and i feel like night beast is one of those films i was never bored watching it i was entertained all the way through so uh night beast probably honestly one of the highest recommendations on this uh, next to the menu and miss 45 um really great stuff but yeah that's gonna do it for this episode guys uh like i said the intermissions are shorter but uh hopefully maybe there's something in here you haven't checked out and maybe you'll give it a give it a whirl or if you have checked it out and have your own thoughts on it let me know we like answering questions here you know where we're not a uh against answering questions and responding to comments and stuff like that so uh Uh, You can do that. Just go to the Facebook page. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook and uh, join up and you can do that. Or if you're already joined, just do it. You you can speak up. You can't, you you don't have to just sit there and uh, watch me and uh, basically Ricky Morgan post uh, posts. Old Ricky Morgan there who fucking does like 18 podcasts a day. Apparently he's always posting stuff there. Um, so you should post some stuff there. Uh, let your opinion be known if you have one. Um, but yeah, you can find the rest of our stuff at They Must Be Destroyed on site. TMBDOS.podbean.com is where you can find all the other episodes, all the other intermission episodes like this. And you can find all of our regular episodes, our Blood on the Tracks episodes where we cover soundtracks and scores. The recent one that just came out was this mega three-hour omnibus of... 1980s sex comedies the soundtracks and scores from those films uh, i think it's a pretty good episode even though it is it is really long so if you're adverse to long episodes then maybe not for you but if you want something that's going to play a bunch of cool music for three hours and in the background while you're out lounging in the nice weather or whatever uh you might you might find yourself uh enjoying it you could do a lot worse i'd, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one so uh check that out um, like I said, the Lee Van Teef show coming in October, his annual Halloween show. Um, 
that will be back. And like I said, we're going to do a lot more horror stuff coming in in October. Uh, Maniac is going to show up pretty soon sometime, hopefully this month, on our regular sort of episodes. Uh, like I said, have to get that sorted out. Um, but yeah, until then... Maybe you'll see another intermission episode next week. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But until then, thanks for listening, guys. And I am fucking out of here. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. For further episodes of this podcast, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts and pretty much any podcatcher that you can find. Thank you. Drive through.